have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be actually starting at the important end of the Gospel of John. If you're using this Bible, the story-based Bible, it's on page 751. So turn there, if you will. Well, he is arguably the greatest athlete who ever lived. No, not John. Michael Jordan could do things on a basketball court that left teammates, opponents, and audiences in awe. He seemed to be able to get a ball into the basket from anywhere on the court in virtually any situation. He could leap impossible distances and suspend himself in the air for unreasonably long periods of time. Rookie of the year, six NBA titles, five MVPs, ten scoring titles, 14 all-star appearances, his own line of Nike shoes, billion-dollar line of shoes. Who had their ability? They were their ability. That was like the thing I All right. By the time of his retirement, his real retirement, in 2003, Jordan amassed unprecedented numbers on the court and unsurpassed celebrity and adoration and fame off the court. Well, in February 2013, it was 10 years after his retirement, Wright Thompson published an article for ESPN, the magazine, chronicling Jordan's life post-basketball. Thompson interviews MJ as a legend. He's turning 50, so now he's what, 54, I think. Trying to take a peek inside the soul of an aging champion to see what makes him tick. The truth is, the answers look pretty unsettling. Uh, you see, since Jordan left basketball, the basketball court in 2013, he had never found any sense of purpose, value, or meaning. In life, the article portrays Jordan and largely using his own words and in interview as aimless, dissatisfied, longing for an era gone by that could never be recovered. Jordan has a hard time grappling with the slow decline of age, uh, arguing with people, like squinting to see a TV screen and a friend gives him a hard time. No, no, I can see. I'm in glass and I'm fine. You know, has a hard time. Uh, imagining, you know, the, the legend of Michael Jordan sort of slowly becoming weak and, and dependent on others. You can't bear the thought. The rage and drive that compelled Jordan throughout his pro career and made him probably the most competitive human being on the planet hasn't subsided or slowed down. He can no longer compete on the court, so he finds every other avenue he possibly can to compete in, in business, in management. He manages a basketball team in Charlotte, in, in, in on the golf uh, course. And any way he can find to compete, he is out there trying to compete. In his 2009 Hall of Fame speech, Jordan called basketball his refuge and quote, the place where I've gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. Late in the interview with Wright Thompson, Jordan wondered, how can I enjoy the next 20 years of my life without so much of this consuming me? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? 
How would you answer that question? Basketball probably isn't the center of your existence, the most important thing in your world, but where would you go to find Where would you go to find purpose, to find meaning in life and personal value? What is it that brings you that sense of fulfillment, of satisfaction? I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. What, what is it that where you find life? Is it financial security? Good 401k, lots of money in the bank, career progress, kind of rising up the corporate ladder, raising well-rounded kids, make sure they're in every possible sport every time they have an opportunity. Or they have a chance for scholarships, or they have a chance for great education, and have a chance for a successful future. Is that where your your hope, your identity, your life is found? Pleasure and entertainment? Boy, entertainment is a gigantic industry in our culture, isn't it? Maybe that's where we're finding our life and our hope and our value. So the point is I think we're all striving to find life. We're all striving to find abundant life. But if we look for it in the wrong places, we're never going to find it. We're never going to find the life. As we turn our attention today to the Gospel of John, I think we'll find an answer to that question. Where can we find life? A resolution to the longing. Where can I connect? How can I connect with my purpose, with my meaning, what I'm supposed to do? Michael Jordan asked, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? Well, Michael, I'm glad you asked. What we'll learn from the Gospel of John is that real life is only found in Jesus Christ. Abundant life is only found in Jesus Christ. So turn with me again to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're going to read verses 30 and 31. You may have a little heading in your Bible that says, The purpose of this book. It's very handy when you have headings like that. Tell you, this is exactly why John wrote this book. Alright? So we're going to read these words together and then we'll unpack um, these later. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, would you guide us, would you open our minds and hearts today to receive from your Spirit the truth of your Spirit and the power of your Spirit for your glory. So we are beginning today a series that I don't know exactly how long it will last uh, in the Gospel of John. So we will be walking through uh, the Gospel of John together, sort of passage by passage. And we're beginning, maybe oddly today, at, at the end of the book, precisely because this is where he tells us the reason that he's written. This is why I wrote this book. But before we get into the content of the book, we probably need to talk a little bit about John. Who is John? Why do we listen to John? Why spend however many months of Sunday looking at this doctrine, this writing? What does it matter? What's the point of it? Well, we look at John and we study what he says because of his authentic witness 
to Jesus Christ. So the Christian faith, really unlike any other world religion or system of belief, is based upon historical events. And if the historical events are not true, then the Christian faith crumbles like a house of cards. It doesn't work. Christianity only works if the historical events upon which it's founded are in fact true and reliable. John provides us a reliable first century testimony to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. John was one of Jesus' sort of band of twelve. So if you read through these gospel accounts, the life and ministry of Jesus, he begins his public ministry by selecting twelve men. Not the most impressive men we can think of. Not the most powerful men, or the most rich men, or the smartest men you can think of. He finds 12 pretty ordinary dudes. John himself is a fisherman, part of a family fishing business with his father Zebedee. And uh, Jesus interrupts his life and calls him to become his disciple, his follower. So, Jesus, so John is one of Jesus' band of 12 followers who, for the next three years, are going to live with Jesus, travel with Jesus, lay their heads in the same places where Jesus is laying his head. Not only was he one of the twelve, he was even among those twelve, one of Jesus' kind of inner circle. Peter, James, and John appear more times throughout the Gospels uh, than the other disciples. And if you read through the book of Acts, <coughs> Peter, James, and, and John are the more prominent of the apostles uh, in kind of beginning the uh, the ministry, the outreach of, of spreading the church, spreading the gospel uh, into the world. And so uh, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That sounds a little arrogant, maybe. Like, he loved me more than all the others. I don't know if that's what he meant, but at least he felt very sure that Jesus' love for him was very real and very life-transforming to him. So John is it is one of the Mantwell and his inner circle. And so his intimate relationship with Jesus qualifies him as a biographer, if you will, as someone to write about the life and times of Jesus Christ, right? And so John's uh, uh, relationship with Jesus uh, gets our attention. We're going to listen to him. John was an eyewitness to Jesus' miracles. When Jesus walked across the Sea of Galilee, and I'm not talking about frozen pond here, when he walked on top of water, John was in the boat that Jesus was approaching. He saw it. When Jesus fed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread and had 12 baskets left over, John was there. He saw that happen. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, which he will record for us, was there. He saw what happened. He saw, he heard Jesus call Lazarus forth, and he saw this dead man in grave clothes coming out of the tomb. John was there. And in fact, he was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus himself from the dead. And in fact, as he will tell us, he's the first one inside the tomb on the Easter morning. And they go and discover that he's not there. John's the first one in there to find holding sack of grave clothes with no Jesus. He is an eyewitness to the miracles of Jesus. Would you listen to him? 
He is aided by the Holy Spirit because Jesus told John and the other disciples in John 14, 26 that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In Acts 4.13, the religious leaders, the temple leaders, recognize that John and Peter and these others have been with Jesus because of their, their ministry, their speaking, their powerful uh, acts. They recognize these guys have been with Jesus. And finally, John's writing is, was universally recognized by the first generation of Christians, the early church, as true apostolic testimony that is coming from an apostle, one of these eyewitnesses to the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus. So, John saw him as an ordinary guy, uh, nothing impressive, but John provides a reliable and authentic witness to the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And so we turn our attention to his writings about the Lord Jesus. So now let's look at these verses. So he says there in verse 30 of John 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which I haven't written down. We're going to talk about the word signs. So the first thing we see is that Jesus performed, as John records, miraculous signs. And he called those signs on purpose. He could have just said, I, there, Jesus did many other miracles. Jesus performed many other sort of powerful tricks or something, right? The point is not, wow, he's a pretty impressive guy. It's not like David Blaine, right? Like, wow, how did they do that? Which is pretty good idea. Um, but it's not like, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a cool trick. Jesus, can you do that again? Um, the, the, the miracles are pointing to something. So when John calls them signs throughout the Gospel of John, what he is saying is this powerful act of Jesus represents something. It tells us something about who Jesus is. It points us to something. Um, and really, it's an act of kindness on God's behalf to give us signs. Because we're the kind of people, slow of heart, slow to believe, that have to see to believe, right? I won't believe that until I see it, right? Just like Dowdy Thomas, who gets uh, his story told right before these verses that we read. We need to see to believe. And so God says, all right, I will condescend to you and give you signs. Not for their own sake, but to point you toward the reality of who Jesus is. John uses the word sign almost 20 times throughout this book. And there are seven signs that he records in, within the first half. So the first 12 chapters of John there are, are kind of organized around these seven miraculous signs. Signs and the miracles are supposed to point the reader thus to the reality of who Jesus is. So tell him just a second. So when he says Jesus did many other signs, he's saying these seven are not the only ones that he did, but I have chosen to include these seven because they tell the full story of who Jesus is. So, the, when he says in verse 31, these are written, that's what he's talking about. These signs, these miraculous signs that point to reality who Jesus is, have been written. 
So why were they written, John? Why did you write these signs? He tells us in verse 31, these are written so that, I love those words. When you're reading the Bible and you find the words so that, you should pay attention. Because that's God saying, here's why. Right? We, we struggle with that why all the time. And sometimes God decides to give us a so that. Here's what it means. Here's what I'm after. Right? Sometimes we can't make sense of things. Sometimes we struggle to figure out why things happen in our lives or whatever. And God doesn't always give us all the answers. But sometimes He mercifully pulls back the bed and says, Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. So that, here we go. These are written so that you may believe. We're going to hang our word believe. That is an active verb. To believe is an action, it's a call to do something, not just to think something, to agree with something, to have a big idea of something. This is an active trust. So he says, I've written about these signs so that you will believe. In other words, John intends to persuade. John is writing this book and these stories about Jesus so that you will believe, so that you will change your mind from where you are I don't know about Jesus, I'm not sure who he is, sure he's a great teacher, but I don't know about all that some God stuff, right? It's to come over to the other side and see who he is in all of his glory. We can tell us that in just a second. The verb believe occurs more than 80 times in the Gospel of John. And there is this pervasive call to the audience and to the readers to believe in Jesus in response to these miraculous signs, in response to who he is. Here's the thing. We trust in things all the time. We are people of faith, whether we think it or not, or whether we know what that means or not. We put our faith in things all the time. Every time I put my trash out to the curb, it's an act of faith that someone from Baltimore County is going to come by and pick it up, right? Why do I think that someone from Baltimore County is going to come by and pick up my trash? I will do it. Because I've seen it before. Right? Said last week when I put up my trash, someone came and picked it up. And the week before that, I put up my trash, somebody came by and picked it up. So that keeps happening. And so those are signs that point to the reality of Baltimore County waste management system or whatever that thing's called. And I can trust when I put my garbage out there for me to take it for me. Uh, when we turn the ignition in our car, I am expecting, I am trusting this thing is going to start. Sometimes I get left high and dry because the car doesn't start. But I am trusting I'm going to be able to get to where I'm trying to go on time because the car is going to start and it's going to take me where I'm going. Why do I put my trust in the ignition of the car? Because most of the time, when I turn the ignition, the engine starts. And then the car takes me where I want to go. If you put money in a bank account, you are trusting that the systems that they have in place to keep that money secure are going to keep your money safe. You're trusting that someone's not going to break in there and take your money. And if they do, guess what? The government has bonded that and all that money is going back to you. Right? So we are trusting in the bank. Why? Because generally when I put money in the bank, when I go back and get it, it's still there. We've seen that happen time and time again. How about the example of flying on an airplane? How many of you fly on airplanes? Alright, so what you're doing when you fly an airplane, just to remind you, is you're sitting in a chair on a 
200 ton hunk of metal that's going to go soaring through the air. Is that a good idea? Like, you think, what am I doing? But why do we do it? Because I've been on a plane before, and it worked out. And you know, like hundreds of flights a day from this airport, they work out. Pilots know what they're doing. Planes generally work properly, and people get from point A to point B. And so, because we know this usually works the right way, I can get on the seat in an airplane and trust that I'm going to be okay. So we put our faith in the airplane based on what we have seen, evidence that we have found. So when John says, I have written these things that you may believe, what he's saying is, I'm not calling you to blind faith. I'm not calling you to just trust Jesus as he said, you should trust me. I am actually showing you time and time again that Jesus proves himself to be utterly unique, utterly powerful, and utterly worthy of our trust and our faith. Just a couple of verses before this, when Jesus was speaking to Thomas. So Thomas is going to say, I won't believe that he's risen from the dead until I can actually touch the wound in his hand and side and see him and know that he's there. Right? So Jesus again mercifully comes to Thomas and goes, There they are. Put your hand there. Put your hand here. Right? And then Thomas believes to his credit. He says, My Lord and my God. But then Jesus says, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen me. And so you and I have not seen in the same way that Thomas was able to see. Jesus in flesh and blood standing in front of us is not our reality. So there's a sense in which whatever belief we have is a belief without having seen. And Jesus kind of says, it's actually better. Blessed are you if you believe without having seen. That, 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 there's more good in that for you. But it's not a blind belief. It's a belief that is based on time and time again the reality of who Jesus proves himself to be through these miraculous signs. So what exactly is it? Who is it that he proves himself to be? He tells us, these are written, verse 31, so that you may believe, so that I might believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Here's it, the Christ, the Son of God. So what does that mean? What is Christ? It's not just Jesus' last name. Like, I'm Kyle Carlson, and this is Jesus Christ. Like, if he were on an alphabetized list, my last name would be Christ, comma, Jesus. That's not what Christ means, right? Christ is a title. This is like king, like president. This, this, this is an office that Jesus holds. So it's like Jesus the Christ. So what does that mean? Well, it means sent one. It means anointed one. It's the very same. So this was written in Koine Greek to begin with. And it's the very same notion in Greek that the word Messiah would have been in Hebrew. So if you read the Old Testament and you see the word Messiah, the word Christ in the New Testament is the very same thing. And what it means is the one who has been sent from God. The one anointed by God to do the work of establishing the kingdom of God and bringing restoration to the broken world and setting things right. So when John says Jesus is the Christ, he is saying Jesus 
uniquely is the only one that God sent to save the world. God sent him into the world to bear our brokenness and to take what was messed up and separated from him and to set life to bring things back together. That is what we need to say that Jesus is Christ. The Christ. But he's not just like some guy that God found and sent, hey, you go and do this thing. He also is the Son of God. The Son of God. Now this gets tricky, alright? Your mind will kind of fall apart if you think about this for very long. But go with me for just a second. God is one being in three persons. Alright. God is three persons and yet one God. One being. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Those three distinct personalities exist together and consist of the same God stuff. The same godness that dwells in God the Father dwells in God the Son. That same godness dwells in God the Holy Spirit. Even though they play different roles, even though they are distinct in personality, they are one God together. Now, one plus one plus one equals one. Doesn't make sense to our pea brain, but that is the God is revealed in the pages of Scripture. The word that's been coined after the Bible to describe that reality is Trinity. You've probably heard. That's what it means. It's a tri-unity. Three people, one God. Three persons, one God. So, when John says that Jesus is the Son of God, what he means is, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that is God the Son, in human flesh. Because in John 1, which we're going to read next week, that's Christmas, by the way. The Word of God, the Son of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is uniquely Godness, total, full deity, combined with full humanity, except for sin. Every other human being that's ever lived sins. Jesus does not sin. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without Sense. So Jesus never takes the step to get into the temptation and to sin and to fall away from God. But he is fully human and fully God in one person. There is no one else in all the universe, in all of history, of whom this can be said. This is a unique claim of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. He's not just a special guy, he's God in flesh. You know, some people like to say, well, you know, I think Jesus was probably a very good moral teacher or a very wise man and had some great philosophies that we should live by, um, but I'm not sure that I'm willing to say that he's God. That's kind of crazy, right? Well, the the, uh, British theologian C.S. Lewis said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about me. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would be either a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us from midnight ends. So Jesus makes insane claims about himself. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, is going to say over and over, I'm God. I'm son of God. And people, religious people, that know the law and know the Bible of that day, they get back. They try to stone him. They try to kill him. And so they do kill him. Because he claimed to be God. There was no question about what Jesus is claiming about himself. He claimed to be the son of God. God himself. The second person of the triune God in human flesh. And if Jesus claims that about himself, we have to make a decision. We have to make a choice. Is Jesus who he said he is? Or do we dismiss him as a lunatic or a demon of hell? He's either an absolutely wicked guy who's out to fool everybody, and we are just totally right off. Or he's crazy. This guy thinks he's God. That is ridiculous. Or, he's really the son of God. So John is writing and showing us these seven signs so that we will be convinced to believe that Jesus is really the Christ. Jesus is really the son of God. He really is who he said he is. And so as we read and study these, uh, these words and these passages together, that's what John is trying to do. He's trying to convince us. By the way, that's what I'm going to try to do to you. I'm going to try to convince you. If you're not sure about who Jesus is, I want to persuade you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you are sure who he is, I hope that these studies, these scriptures, will make it all the more certain who Jesus is. And because of that, your life will be all the more yielded to him and responsive to him as Lord and God. So, that's the goal. That's what we're after. So, I've written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And, last phrase, secondary verse, that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may have life in his name. You're not going to find on the back of all fruit. You're not going to find it in a full, overflowing bank account. You're not going to find it in successful kids who graduate college and have great jobs. You're not going to find it in pleasure and entertainment and keeping up with the latest movies and trends. You're not going to find real life, abundant life, anywhere other than in faith in Jesus Christ. That is the contention of the Gospel of John. That is the call and claim of Jesus. And the invitation is, come on. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said in John 10 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came 
came where? From heaven to earth as a man. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is what Jesus is about. That's why he came. He wants us to have abundant, full, flowing, real life. And it only comes through him. He gives us abundant life now and he gives us eternal life. Verse you're probably familiar with John 3.16. Jesus says to the Pharisee and Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son as himself. That whoever believes, there's that call again, believes, not just agree, not just think it might be true, but then put your body in the seat on the plane. Believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Did you know that you're an eternal creature? Everyone. The quote C.S. Lewis King says, You have never met a mere mortal. Every one of us is designed for eternity. He wants us to spend that eternity with him. He wants us to begin that abundant eternal life now by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and agreeing, yes, Jesus is not just a special guy, not just a good moral teacher. Jesus is Christ. He's the one that was sent from God to redeem the world. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God himself in human flesh. And he offers me abundant and eternal life if I will trust him, if I will come to him. So that's the invitation to each one of us today. Come to him and receive abundant life. Real life is only in Jesus. You're not going to find it somewhere else. And the reason that we exist, the reason that Imprint Community Church is coming into being, is because we believe that is so important that we think that a community of people built around that reality, that real life is in Jesus Christ, is worth building. And we think that a community of people built around the reality that life is in Jesus Christ can make a huge difference in the community where we're located. So we want to see people of all walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ages, abilities, whatever, coming to faith in Jesus Christ and finding this is real life. So we begin to study the Gospel of John. I hope you will, you will come back and continue joining us for it so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name.